Welcome back to the Sunday Long Read Podcast. My name is Don Van Natta. We have a big treat for you today. One of my favorite writers and one of my favorite people on the planet, Chris Jones, is here with us. Chris has written for Esquire, the New York Times Magazine, and ESPN, the magazine. He is the winner of two National Magazine Awards for feature writing. And uh, I believe, and I think Chris also believes, he should have won three. We'll talk, <laughs> up, we'll talk about that. Oh God, uh, okay. Chris, welcome. <laughs> Thanks, Don. How are you? I'm doing great. It's great to have you here. I really appreciate you, ma- yeah, appreciate you making the time. So on Twitter, Chris's handle is at Enswell Jones, and his bio I just love. I want to read Chris's bio to everybody. His bio is formerly at my second empire, formerly a lot of things, hopefully will be more things, which is a very intriguing bio. So Chris, uh, what are the things you want to be in the future? Happy. Uh, <laughs> don't, we, don't we all? Don't we all? Content. <laughs> at, at peace. Um, I, I, geez, when I did that, so I don't even know where to start. I've had a tumultuous year, my friend. Uh, when my old Twitter bio was My Second Empire, which, which a lot of people took as like some weird arrogant thing, like, Magazines are my first empire. Now Twitter's my second. Uh, it was named after my. I had a blog at Esquire about my old house, which is a second empire. Like an empire, a second empire is a style of architecture. Um, and then last summer, my marriage dissolved, and I had to sell my very pretty second empire. And and going onto my Twitter to look at the picture of my house. <laughs> It was like killing me. I was like, I can't do this anymore. So I changed my Twitter handle. And, you know, around that time, Esquire, you know, I've been at Esquire for like 14 years and our big boss, David Granger, got fired and we all quit. And so in the span of about three months, you know, my marriage and my job, uh, my house, you know, we're all gone. And uh, I changed my Twitter handle and decided I was going to try to be some other things. And that's a long way of saying that I've started a career as a screenwriter, which is fun and scary and all sorts of other things. So, Which is fascinating. But oh. that was brutal. You had a brutal summer. Oh, man. It was bracing. It was a bracing. I lost many things in short order. Um, and the only thing I can say about like... Uh, a life cataclysm like that is it does allow you to make a bunch of corrections and it also makes you kind of bulletproof like what can possibly hurt me now um so you <laughs> so you know entering a new career and all the sort of fear and anxiety that comes with that uh was suddenly a lot less than it might have been had i just jumped into it with two feet before what are the corrections that you made Well, I mean, you know, like a lot of middle-aged people, I guess, I sort of, I'd been on train tracks, do you know what I mean? Like, I just Mm kind of was on rails and, um, uh, you know, I I wasn't unhappy. I was just sort of, you know, every year I'd renew at Esquire and I was married and had two kids and worked on my house and um, I will say that I'd sort of entered a time of my life where I didn't have a lot of free time or fun like I I was speaking at a student journalism conference and I was being interviewed by one of the organizers you know I guess for my bio in the program or whatever and she said so what do you do for fun and I was actually stumped I had one of those moments where I went oh man I don't 
I don't really know. Um, which is a terrible sort of reckoning. Uh, so, so I think I just, I, I just got into a place where I just worked. Like I was just, and, and to be honest, you know, my house, I loved my house, but it was a giant old pile and it was a constant source of labor. Um, you know, people talk about money pits. My house was a life pit in a lot of ways and mm -hmm. selling that I've moved into, um, I joke with my friends who are very worried about me that I now live in a van by the river, uh, except the van doesn't have wheels. And that's basically true. I live in a tiny house, um, that requires no maintenance. Uh, I do a lot of writing now that I didn't have time to do like the screenwriting. I could really take a swing at that. Um, when I spend time with my kids, I spend, you know, really quality dedicated time with them now. Um, because when you're, when you're, when you're divorced, you sort of, you know, you, you, you get time and, uh, instead of being distracted, I'm like, this is my time with my boys and, and, and things like that. I mean, that's, those are all sort of the, the life changes that kind of are possible once, once the explosion happens before the explosion, you're, you're scared to make any moves cause you don't want to mess anything up. Once it's all blown to pieces, you're like, well, now I can do whatever I want. And that's where I'm at. Now, a lot of people, when they view you, Chris, last summer, uh, right before the cataclysm starts, they see you're a writer for 14 years for Esquire, you're at the top of your profession, they would be guessing you were having a lot of fun. And when that question was asked at that journalism conference and you couldn't think of things having fun, I mean, it's the inevitable question is, were your was your work-a-day life as a writer that many people dream about, was it no longer fun or did it stop becoming fun? No, my work was... I, I enjoyed my work and Esquire was, I mean, a magical place to be a writer. It was perfection. Um, and it's funny now that I'm out of it. Um, I get, I, I was very fortunate in the sense that when I, I, I had one newspaper job from 98 to 2001, it was at a national paper in Toronto with a great editor and weirdly high resources uh, for a paper. And then I had one, principal magazine job at Esquire, 2002 to 2016. And so I didn't experience other places and I knew I had it great at Esquire, but you know, it's leaving it has sort of taught me like how good it was. And it was a very special, great editing, great resources, good friends, you know, great colleagues. The fact checking was incredible. Um, the copy editing was perfect. You know, everything was perfect. Like we, everything was set up so that we could do our best possible work. And I love my job. I mean, I would never say in a minute that I didn't. Um, when I say I wasn't having fun, like, you know, I like to golf, for instance. And she, that's what I finally came up with to answer that student. And she said, oh, how many times do you golf? And I had golf like twice that year. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's, <laughs> it's sort of, that's what happens. I just, yeah. got, I just got busy. And that's part of life. I mean, that's part of middle age, I think. Um, but it, 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 that was sort of when it dawned on me that, that things had kind of, that sort of worked my way into a spot. And, and I mean, that is not at all to say that I did not like my job. It was a dream job. Sure. Uh, um, and I, you know, couldn't have asked for anything more at Esquire. Tell me about Granger. <laughs> I've just, I mean, he's a legend and I've heard so many things about him and, you know, our mutual friend Scott Rabb mm -hmm. has told me stories about him, about just what a fantastic visionary editor Great. he is and, and how privileged I know Scott felt working for him. Yeah. He just, we, Esquire was, I mean, if it tells you anything, I, I was there, I was the last guy in basically. And I was there for 14 years. 
I mean, everyone else was had been there longer. You know, no one left, which for me is sort of the most telling possible thing is that that people got to Esquire. When I was a kid, you know, Esquire was my dream destination. I didn't really think of working anywhere else. And I got there and uh, of course I wasn't going anywhere. Like, why would I ever leave? And Granger, to tell you a story, so fairly, I'm going to get the timing wrong probably, but either just before I got there or just after, um, Andy Langer, who was our music writer, wrote a story about iTunes, I think. It was somehow related to Apple. And Steve Jobs got really upset about it and threatened the magazine saying, if something isn't done about this, I'm going to pull all my advertising. And at the time, Apple was the back cover. I mean, it was a big account. And Granger stood by Andy. And, you know, Jobs did what he said he was going to do and pulled all the advertising for years. And that would have cost the magazine millions of dollars over the over the time. And but the rest of us knew that Granger had our backs. It, it sort of was like, you know, it, I think it's fairly rare these days for writers to feel like they are that liberated editorially that that even if they and Andy did not mess up, but even if you did mess up, your your boss had your back. And I mean, we all felt a huge loyalty to Granger before that. After that, we would have taken bullets for him. And yeah. and that's just he always looked after us. He shielded us totally from the demands of the business and money worries and you know we were never never told about clicks never told about you know you got to do this story because it'll generate traffic we never had any of that ever and i mean to work under someone like that for that long was just a total privilege for sure there's nothing better than an editor who has your back at all times unequivocally uh and does not let the business pressures crowd into your way of thinking about anything, about ideas, about reporting, about writing, about any kind of execution. It's yeah, an it's extremely rare so privilege. Rare. Yeah. And it's such a, such a, that kind of journalism is like such a faith-based exercise. You know, you're trusting your subjects that they're not going to snow you and your editor is trusting you that you're going to deliver a good story and you're trusting your editor that he or she isn't going to mess it up or throw you under the bus if something goes wrong. I mean, you're all sort of tied together in this agreement that, you know, we're not going to screw each other. Uh, and to have that full confidence that everything's going to be okay, that you're all going to do your best was huge. I mean, I, I never worried about that for the only thing I worried about at Esquire, to be totally honest with you, Don, was that I, they, one day the phone was going to ring and they were going to say, they were going to call my bluff and that I didn't belong anymore and that it was over. That was my only fear. And that fear pretty much never went away um, because I always felt like almost too lucky. Like I almost felt like it can't work out so easily for me. Um, but the, the rest of my Esquire existence was the most peaceable, um, you know, just nothing ever to worry about. Like we just did our best and that it was such a great place to work. I live with that fear every day, Chris. That every, is over. 
Every day I live with that fear that that phone call is coming and somebody says, you have lost your fastball. You're done. Uh, we're putting you out to pasture. You've been 30 years in this business, Van Atta. That's enough. That's you've enough, had, yeah. You've, you've had enough. you know, you got movies. Yeah, don't you've, worry you've about had, it. You've had enough gravy, uh, yeah. you know, and, and that's it. No, I mean, but but you use it as jet fuel. At least I do, and I think you did, you did too, right? That worry drives you on the next story, not to sit on your laurels and to just – try to hit that home run every pitch right yeah, I mean, you, yeah you make it work for yourself yeah the fear is i think a good motivator um and for me it wasn't like a financial fear it wasn't you know i always felt like well, i'm the kind of person who could be happy working at home depot so i was like you know it wasn't <laughs> that it was you know a big part of working at esquire for me was always um you know i'm 43 now and i i've always felt like a kid there I always felt like I was like the little brother trying to keep Well, you up. were. You, you were I the was. rookie. You were I the was. rookie. I was yeah, the rookie. Sure. I was the rookie. Yeah. So you're sitting yeah. there, you know, you go to a dinner with Scott Rabb and Tom Juno and Mike Sager and Chiarella and Charlie Pierce, you know, all these guys. Uh, and By the way, that lineup is incredible. That's the Yankees. That's the 27 Yankees, that lineup. Oh, it was, it was yeah. you know, I never, I you know. I, I say this, and I don't say this like out of false modesty. Like I was the worst writer on the staff of Esquire. Like, and that's that's like a not debatable fact. I mean, as a writer of two time two time nat two, two time National Magazine Award winner saying that. Well, that's, uh, that, that's it, but it's true. It's true. I mean, you look at Charlie Pierce's capacity for language. Like, what I'm supposed to compete with that? You know, Tom <laughs> Juno drops the falling man or some other incredible, and you're going, and your story's sitting shoulder to shoulder with that. I mean, it's. A big part of working at Esquire was sort of the internal, you know, comp- not competition, but like sort of the stress of being shown up. <laughs> like, yeah, you didn't want to sure. be the weak link. But see, that's jet fuel too, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I, I had that. I had that at the Times. I have it at ESPN now. Yeah, it's just your surround. And Janot's a colleague of mine now. It's like, really? Like, I'm, I'm you know, going to be in the same magazine as Tom Janot? That's, it's daunting. Oh my it's God. scary. Huge scary. Like, and when I started, yeah. you know, when I started Esquire, I was replacing Charlie. Oh, that's right. You know, that's I right. I took over oh, the man. sports column. And, no, no, that's yeah, oh that's God. brutal. No, that's brutal. Like this, that's I mean, brutal. You're so privileged. You're so lucky. But but it's also this. It's a it's a different kind of anxiety where you go, wow, I made it, and holy moly, I'm terrified. <laughs> you know, it's like it's just a different <laughs> a different set of standards. I don't know how to explain that without sounding like an ingrate, like it, it or you know. I guess no, not at all. It was it was I, I, it was scary. It was a scary place to work in some ways. Chris, how'd you get your job at Esquire? I went in and asked for it. Isn't that how everyone gets jobs? You just went in and saw Granger and said, <laughs> you, you, "You said you need me." No, I went in. Um, I went in. Uh, the story has become kind of apocryphal over the years, but I went in cold. I was working at the National Post. I was covering a Blue Jays Mets baseball series in New York, uh, and I went into. I didn't know how writers got found. You know what I mean? I wasn't sure if like the editors of Esquire sort of read papers and try to find kids. You know, I didn't know how it worked. And I mean, but they do do that. But but yeah, you didn't know that. I didn't know. I which know, was, I was good. A, was which a, was good. You didn't know that. Yeah, yeah they were they recruit people they whose they work like, they admire. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's I did how it not works. know anything. I was like <laughs> a Canadian hick working at a newspaper writing base. You know, I had no idea. And I went in. This is how much I didn't know. Is I went into the Esquire offices cold and asked to meet with David Granger. Uh, to introduce myself. And the security guy was like, do you have an appointment? And I was like, nope. And he was like, well, no. And um, <laughs> and that was it. I was walking out and this janitor, 
stopped me as I was leaving, who had overheard, you know, I'd had a much longer conversation with a security guy trying to talk my way in. And this, and long story short, the janitor was like, you want to talk to this guy, Andy Ward? Uh, he's the sports guy here. And uh, I went back and asked the security guard to talk to Andy, and he let me call. So I called up from the lobby. You know, I said, uh, I'd love to talk to you about how you work at Esquire. And he said, sure. You know, when are you coming into town? And I said, actually, I'm in your lobby. Uh, and he said, I have a meeting now, but come back in a couple hours, uh, which I did. I brought a box of donuts. Canadians, you know, we, we cur- our principal currency is baked goods. So I brought the box of donuts <laughs> for the janitor and a box of donuts for Andy and showed him my stuff. I was such an idiot. I like, oh my God, I'm getting hot just thinking about it. I made Andy, I was sitting across the desk from Andy and I made him read my stuff like as I'm sitting there. And, and it was just quiet in the office? It's just Is quiet it? as I'm watching him read. I still remember I, I, I wrote a story about Arturo Gatti, this boxer. It was like a double truck in the paper, and I gave it to Andy. And I said, I just want to know if there's any hope. Like, tell me if there isn't, and then I'll stop thinking about it. And Andy said, no, there's hope. Like, there's hope. And uh, maybe a few months later, he emailed to say Charlie was leaving the sports column, and they are going to have a tryout to see who got the job. And I ended up with the job. It was just one of those stupid... You know, someone taking a shot on you and they have no reason to take a shot on you. And how many years experience did you have at that moment, Chris? I had like two and a half years of, of newspaper journalism. Um, wow. Uh, wow. And I'd done some sort of features, but the column, the sports column at Esquire was 2,500 words. And that um, that was pretty long for me. That's a long column. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and for me, as you know, a newspaper guy, that's, that's long. And I, <laughs> I still remember I was doing Barry Zito who I knew um, from being on the baseball beat. And I wrote it in like two days and sent it in. And Andy's going, what's this? And I'm going, what's my column? But he's like, you know, you have like six weeks. (laughs) And I was going, what am I doing in six weeks? Like, am I writing 50 words a day? Like what's, (laughs) (laughs) and of course I'd written it like a newspaper column, you know, like quote, paragraph, quote, paragraph, quote, paragraph. And Andy was like, this, this isn't gonna, this isn't gonna do. And, uh, I went back and worked on it, worked on it, and they ran it. And then I got one more column, and then I got one more column, and then I just kind of went from there. Now, when you were a kid, did you? when did you figure out that you wanted to be a writer? How old were you, and, and what made you want to become a writer? I was very late. Um, when I was, I loved writing. Like, when I was a kid, I wrote, I copied books out. You know, it's one of those things when you, I look back, I go, okay, I was supposed to be a writer. Uh, I had a high school teacher who said I should write. When you're a teenager, I don't know about you, but I just kind of blew stuff off like that. Um, I remember Mr. Keeley, my, uh, I went to a very small high school with like 60 kids. So Mr. Keeley was my geography, phys ed, and some other kind of teacher. Uh, and he said I should be a writer, and he said it in front of my friends, and I, I kind of blew him off. Um, years later, I ran into him at a parade, and I was like, Mr. Keeley, you really changed my life. Um, <laughs> it's one of those, like, that's sort of planted in there, but I went to school... I, did, I went to university for politics, then I did a grad school in urban planning. Um, oh, so and you, I, bounced, you bounced around. I was totally lost kid. Yeah. Like I, I had yeah. no no idea what I wanted to be. Um, and it was when I was doing my master's at the University of Toronto, I lived in a residence that was like Hogwarts. It's called Massey College. We wore gowns to dinner. You know, it was a very sort of traditional kind of place. And the headmaster was a former journalist and... He saw me writing at night and knew I wasn't doing it for school because 
my school was arts and crafts. Like I colored and made models and, um, he asked to see my stuff when I showed him and he's the one who got me the newspaper job. So my whole career, you know, young writers always ask me like, how do I get to be what you did? And I'm, I go, well, just be an idiot, run into the exact right people at the exact right time, have them perform miracles for you. And then don't blow it once you get there. Like that's basically be my career track. It's not helpful to anybody. Well, the, the, the not blowing it once you get there is obviously a big, big part of it, right? Of becoming a writer. Once you get that opportunity, you've got to step up. And you certainly have proven to have done that, you know, over and over and over again. Um, that's the gig, right? You got to do it more than once. That's the gig. That's the gig. <laughs> totally. You can't ride it. And you got to have confidence. So one, one of the questions I have, one of the things I love about your writing, Chris, is just the, the authoritative cool confidence in your voice when did you figure out you had a voice and how do you write so confidently as a guy as a late bloomer as you are you know when, when did you sort of put that together and how did you do it i that's a good question i mean i talked to i don't feel like i have a voice like i don't i don't think of my stuff and again, maybe it's because I was as Esquire and like Tom has such a distinctive voice and Charlie has such a, like I can identify Scott Rabb's stuff without his name on it or Charlie's stuff I can identify without his name on it. Sager, I can identify his stuff without his name on it. I don't feel like I write like that. Like I, I feel like I have a very sort of meat and potatoes way of writing. Um, so I, I, I don't know that I have, I think of myself as having like the bass writing voice. You know, like just this, this is basic English. Um, I think no, but I disagree. There's a muscular uh, for me in, in reading you, and I, I reread a lot of your great work last night. I, you you have a muscular way of writing. There, there's details. You you're drawn in uh, very quickly. There's an economy with your writing that that is striking in reading several pieces back to back. I mean, it's it's a voice. It's a voice. Believe me, it, and it's a great one. Thank you. But I I just think of it as being like very. I don't want to step on myself. Like I don't, I'm not a good enough writer to do like real flights of fancy or, you know, trapeze swinging. Like I can't do that. So it's for me, it's, I think I write very sort of cleanly. Like I think I, because I don't want to screw up. So I just go back, I revert to basic language. Um, I think what the confidence, whatever confidence I have is because a place like Esquire let you report the hell out of something. I mean, our, our standard was you would report until I could s sit at a bar with you and tell you the story, <laughs> you know, like that I could just sit down and write it. Um, and I know I've talked to Tom Gino about this too. Uh, and Gene Weingarten actually is not at Esquire, but the post, he writes this way too, where you, you don't go back to your notes. You don't listen to the interviews. You in your first draft, you just sit down and you tell the story and then you go back and you make sure everything's right and your quotes are correct and blah, blah, blah. But at that first run at things, you're just writing from memory uh, because you know the story, you know it so well and you just tell it like a story. And that's, that's how I worked. And that's the reporting is what gave me confidence. And when you, you know, when you and I, you may remember this, we met in Vegas. Uh, yes. You I were doing this. that. You were doing that carrot top thing. I had already had a few beers by the time we got together. Uh, you 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 had, you started drinking when you got together with me, so yeah. I was ahead of you. But yeah. you were doing a carrot you were doing a carrot top yeah. profile, and yeah. I said, "What's it about?" And you told me, and I was drawn in, and it was like 
reading a Chris Jones story, but hearing it. Uh, I mean, really, I, I mean, a lot of what you said, I remember because then I read the piece, I don't know, two months later, three months later, it was kind of the way you described it. I honestly sometimes think I should just drive home, talk into a microphone, record the story as I tell it, and then just transcribe it. I mean, that's basically how I write. And it's, it's, uh, that's what I mean by the language. Like, I just tell a story. I don't, I don't do a lot of fancy stuff. And, um, and what I tell young writers all the time, because often young writers are worried about their voice. They want to, they want to establish them. They, 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 especially young male writers, they end up infatuated with like Hunter S. Thompson or Ernest Hemingway or Cormac McCarthy or Gary Smith, you know, someone with a very distinctive and powerful voice. And they think I got to be that. And I think what you need to concentrate on is like the reporting. And if you have the material, then the writing is kind of secondary. You know, like the, the, if you just have a, if you have a good idea and you report it well, you're 90% of the way there. Now you just have to tell it. And that's, that's how you, especially for young writers who are still developing their talent. That's, that's a great leveler. Like if you can report as well as anybody else, then you're golden. You know, it's, 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 so for me, sometimes it's backwards. Like the writing gets the attention, especially when you're a magazine writer and the writing's important, obviously, and structure is really important and pace and all those things. Um, but a huge part of it is, do you have a good idea and is the material there? And if you have those two things, then the writing's usually pretty easy. I agree with you. And I think that it often gets lost how important the reporting is. Um, do you find it hard to report? No, it's my favorite part of the gig. I don't, yeah. know about, I don't know about you. Like Me too. I my, love it. My dream job would be to report and then hand it off to somebody. And let yeah, like they, used to do it, like they used to do it at Time Magazine, right? The guys yeah. in the field would do all the reporting and send it back to the home office in New York and somebody else would write it. Golden. That, yeah. I mean, apart from my dream, dream job would be to like pick up garbage on the side of the road. But like the, the <laughs> but the, that doesn't pay super well. But the, uh, but the, but the, the reporting is what I enjoy. I mean, the writing is fine. I, I've never had a, I've never had writer's block or uh, I've never sort of resented having to sit down on my computer. Uh, I never understand writers who, who talk that way about writing. I'm like, there are lots of other ways to make a living. Like if you hate this, this much, then don't do it. Um, but the, you know, the reporting is the thing that I really enjoy. Yeah. The reporting is the chase. I, what, what I find is I'm almost like a frustrated detective. As yeah. an investigative guy, yes. I, I like finding stuff out. Yes. And I like trying to get people who don't want to tell me something to tell me something like the sort of, you know, the mind trick of that and the, you know, the, the charm it takes or just the smarts that it takes. It's just a great challenge. And that chase is the most fun. I'm, I'm in the home stretch of reporting a story now, another piece with Wickersham, and it's just yeah. the best. It's the best. We already have kind of most of the reporting done, and now it's just, we're getting the... We're getting those little details that are really going to make it come alive. And and I wanted to ask you about that. When do you know as you're doing your reporting, Chris, you're like, okay, um, I'm ready. You said earlier it's when you can sit in a bar and tell somebody. But are there yeah. moments when you maybe feel you're not there? And then how do you cross that divide to get there? What, is, what does it take? Oftentimes it's just the privilege of time, right? But Yeah, I mean, I start writing basically when I have to. Um, and I'm a, I think from my newspaper days, I'm, a, I'm pretty quick. Uh, you know, I can pound a thousand or two thousand words a day if I have to. So, you know, I leave my writing until pretty late in the game. 
Um, and that's because I don't want to stop reporting. And I've had so many instances, and I'm sure you've had the same, where it's like the last person you talk to or the last conversation of 12 with somebody when they drop the most interesting <laughs> you know, yes. piece of information. And it's a terrifying prospect to me that you don't make that phone call and your story is completely different because you didn't get that thing that everything else hangs on. And, and so for me, I report until basically I, I'm not allowed to anymore. Do you, you just touched on something that I, I tell young students all the time, and that is you got to report with fear and with lack of confidence. And at least I do. It, what works for me is I'm always worried that there's somebody that I'm not talking to who knows that one detail or that one insight that will yeah. elevate the story. And, yeah. and if, and you, you got to write with confidence, but you got to report with complete, uh, lack of confidence and insecurity and worry. Yeah, at least exactly. I do. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And, and for yeah. me, it's that if I report well enough, the writing, then I, then I don't have to worry about the writing. What I'm scared about writing is when I don't have the material because I'm not a good enough writer to bluff. People would call me on that so fast. Like I cannot, you know, these people who can write a thousand words about what someone looks like, like I'm not that writer. They have a nose with a mouth under it. Like I don't, I can't, <laughs> I can't do that. So the reporting for me is this quest to make the writing painless. And sense. how do you and how do you get your great details? Because your details and your pieces, and we're going to talk about some of your pieces here in a moment, um, are are phenomenal. Really jumped off the page at me. I mean, they always did when I read and admired you before I got to know you. But they they jump off the page. How do you collect them? Do you collect them in real time, or do you go back as you're writing and and say, you know, I want to find out when when I'm writing about Teller sitting at his computer in his Las Vegas house. Um, he's with an eye shot, as you write, of a large black escape cross once owned by Houdini. Did you notice that in the moment, or did you go back and figure that out later? No, I noticed that. I mean, we... You talked about it. Yeah. He put ropes into it and showed me how it worked. And, um, oh, okay. So you had got, that. Yeah, yeah you got that in real time. I got that. Yeah, and most of yeah. it I get in real time. Um, all I can say to but that... You gotta be a, but you have to be observant, though, don't you? That's, that's what you have to be. No, yeah. no, that's, what the, that's, that's, that's the secret is... Eyes open, ears open. Um, I was talking to Michael Hall from Texas Monthly. We got to get a group of writers got together, uh, Thomas Lake's place a little while ago. And we were both talking about how people don't understand how tiring reporting is. Um, you know, I would, I come home at an end of a day of reporting and I'm spent. And it's because, it's because you're on the whole time. Just, you, you don't, I don't want to miss whatever, you know, and if I'm interviewing someone, I'm listening really intently to what they're saying because maybe they open up a little exit ramp off the highway that I didn't know existed that I need to go down and maybe they're giving me a hint about something that I really need to know about and I got to pursue that further um and your eyes are constantly open you know your ears and eyes are just constant for me they're just in constant operation and and it's like exercise it's tiring after a while but you you, you can't sort of let yourself fall back or fade out you know how sometimes you zone out when you're talking to somebody like when you're reporting you can't do that because that might be the moment they give you everything uh so so that's i mean the other thing you know talking about how young writers can sort of level the playing field reporting is not it's a skill i think but it's it's the of the process it's the part that's the most just manual labor it's the part that's just hard work and effort and talking to people listening being a good listener looking for those details, keeping your eyes open, making one more phone call, even though you're tired, 
um, taking good notes, thinking about your fact checker down the road who's going to have a nightmare plopped on his desk, and and just being aware. I mean, that's all that reporting is. It's just it's just being open to the world, and and I think anyone can do that. You just have to make up your mind that you're going to do that. Do you record your interviews? Yeah, I mean. It, Inconspicuously, I don't jam something in someone's right. face. Uh, right. I'm a huge fan of napkin dispensers in diners. Uh, you know, <laughs> so the little red light is kind of hidden. Um, yeah. And and you know the work we do. Like sometimes you're eight days with someone. You know, I don't have a recorder going constantly. I'll have it. I'll have it if we're doing like a sit down interview. But if we're just hanging out at some point, then I'm just taking notes. I don't know about you. I go to the bathroom a lot. Oh yeah, many many bathroom trips. Oh yeah, no. I at, at dinner with Jerry Jones uh, for that Jerry Jones profile, and uh, yeah, I think I went to the bathroom five or six times. Well, of course, you got to scribble stuff down. You got to scribble stuff down. Three, three hours. Yeah, I think every twenty or thirty minutes. Yeah, you have to do that. And um, that Jerry story, by the way, is so instructive. Oh, well, thank you, man. Like I, I'm, the, I had so fact, much fun. Oh, but the, I fact been, even, the fact that you even got it. Yeah, I mean, he, I just was lucky that he was sitting alone in that, uh, that Ritz Carlton bar. Yeah, yeah. I just, I was just fortunate that he was in an expansive. He's always in an expansive mood, but he was, he was drinking alone. I don't think Jerry likes to drink alone. I think that was the secret. I was just lucky that I found him drinking a, a whiskey by himself, and he was it's just perfect. in a mood. Yeah, but then you kept, then you kept it rolling. I mean, that's such a big part of the job too. Is like an underrated part of this job is. Convincing people to talk in the first place, and then convincing them to spend like lots of time with you. Like, yes. Like there's there's the right. there's getting that initial yes, which can sometimes be a big hurdle. But then once you're in the room and their publicist has said, okay, you've got 45 minutes. Your next job is to make them go, no, I want to hang out with this person for the next three weeks of my life, like, <laughs> which is and, an underrated and you, skill. And, and Chris, you're great at that. And, and I, I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, in, on my Jerry Jones story, what ha- the reason why he continued to talk to me is because I had done my homework. I just, yes. I, had, I talked to enough people and read enough things and asked, I think, educated enough questions that engaged him. I mean, I went to sort of the holy grail with him, which is Jimmy Johnson and his legacy as a football man right off the bat. It made it clear that was one of the main things I wanted to write about about him. And he, 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 he I think, appreciated that. Do you do that before you ever see somebody? Are you you try to become an expert on that person? Yeah, not to the point where I'm boxed in. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, you know, I, I try to leave some questions open. Um, but... I do agree with you that sometimes subjects are enamored of the fact that you know something obscure about them. Um, there's a great, oh my God, he's the dorkiest person, but there's a Canadian uh, kind of radio music personality named Nardwar the Human Serviette. Um, and when I was, I was, I managed my college radio station. He had a band then, like he's been around forever. And he does these YouTube interviews with musicians that are the most fascinating things to watch because he haunts them like he did one with pharrell williams where he's he's saying tell me about you know this and it'll be some obscure thing from pharrell williams past and pharrell's going like how do you know that no one knows that um and you can see people who are super suspicious of this very strange looking and sounding person um who are then like I'm going to tell you everything because you brought me these presents that mean so much to me because you know this thing about like, so that's a huge part of the game. I think the, um, I'm a big fan of using pity. Uh, I, I'm not ashamed to sort of go, man, I, if you, I'm so screwed, like I've got to deliver 6,000 words and I want to get the story right. And, and man, I, I need your help. Uh, and that is a, another effective 
uh, as long as you're not dealing with a sociopath, that can be sort of an effective and not wrong. I mean, that's that's truthful. Like if 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 we don't talk, my life is less and the story is less, and I need you. Um, oh yeah, no, you and you. If you show the vulnerability, if you show, if you show just how desperate you are, desperation can work. Yeah, it can work. I think the main the thing. I think the the common thread of all of this stuff is showing that you care. Yeah. You know, I think that you want to do a good job. I think the media has such a bad rap, a lot of it deserved, for doing sloppy, crappy work. And especially today, I think. I mean, there's just so much mm-hmm. crap thrown at walls. And I think if you show up and you're the person who is careful and who listens and who wants to get the story right, people people want to tell their stories and they want them to be correct and they want them to be true. And if you present yourself as the person who can do that and who also is a nice person, like, like who isn't the devil, people will talk to you. And it's, 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 in a way it sounds simple. It's really complicated when you're in the room trying to make something happen. But, but a lot of it just comes down to showing that you're like the biggest, you're the biggest heart out there and you want this. And, and I think sometimes people really respond to that. Then how important is just being yourself, Chris? I mean, that's, you know, I, well, I, I used to, yeah, I used to I used to tell uh, young journalism students when I was at the New York Times in the Washington Bureau, I would hear reporters uh, at the next desk do interviews, and I would be astonished at how they would get anybody to tell them anything. They, they, <laughs> they, they sounded just, you know, like it was a, such a transactional uh, experience for the person on the other end of the phone, and there was just no small talk, no empathy, um, you know, almost like a hard-charging prosecutor at times asking questions and the calls wouldn't last very long not surprisingly and uh, it's the opposite of the way you're supposed to be yeah you got, you never as you said to... you gotta you gotta you gotta be you gotta be somebody who they want to hang out with yeah you don't want, i don't think you ever want a subject to feel like they're being interrogated right and i think what happens sometimes again with young writers and this isn't a criticism it's just part of the process i used to do it all the time is they will get a notepad and they'll make a list of the questions they want to ask They'll ask the first question and they'll nod at the answer and they'll ask the second question and they'll nod at that answer. And it's not a conversation. It's a, it's an interrogation and that's an ineffective way to interview. Um, you know, I tell people all the time, like, imagine I'm asking you about the worst day in your life. Cause often we're writing about extreme events. We're writing about someone's best day or worst day. Um, you know, why would you tell me anything if I just berated you or just stuck a microphone in your face and, didn't present myself as a human being like why why would you tell me anything um so yeah absolutely it's it's it should be a conversation it should be two people getting to know each other have you ever had an experience with somebody where you could not build up that trust you felt like it just yeah you were in the room but it just wasn't clicking yeah sometimes you don't click yeah yeah i'm, yeah. You, I'm sure you have too like it's yeah. it's you know i i i i don't know how to say this without sounding I've gotten in so many fights online and I thought to myself, you know, if we were in a room together, we'd probably be buddies. Like, because I think I'm a fairly agreeable person in the flesh. I think sometimes it comes out wrong uh, on the internet, but like, I think most people like hanging out with me. That's a big, like, how do you teach that? How do you, like, you're talking about being yourself. Like, I totally agree with you. You can't spend a month with somebody and be acting the whole time. At some point your card's going to drop. Um, so like being funny and being a good person to hang out with, I mean, that all matters. And I think, 
I don't know how to say, I think I, that's a, like more often than not, people hang out with me. Like it, it, I have, but I have certainly had times when it just doesn't fit. And, and, and that sucks because you're coming home without the story. So before we started this uh, uh, conversation, I asked you for a few of your favorite stories, Chris, and I wanted to see if they matched up with mine. And remarkably, oh, yeah. remarkably, they what you picked are, are my favorites. It was like, well, you, a, you know, it was the Don hit list of, of Chris Jones. Well, I've only pick. done a few good things, buddy, so it makes sense. No, that's not true. <laughs> there's, a, there's a huge body of work to select from. And you, your favorite story, you said, is the piece about Teller. And magic called the honor system. It was published uh, in Esquire in September of 2012, and you said it was a good idea. Teller was amazing, and he really is. And the writing came together. Whose idea was it? And, and talk about it. It's about the story is fantastic because it's about stealing magic, and mm-hmm. and it's about sort of your own property. It's about ideas. It's about identity. It's about all those things. And whose idea was it? And and um, how did you execute it? Uh, it was my idea. Um... I had read. You had read about the lawsuit. The lawsuit. There was like, I mean, so many of my ideas are like four hundred word newspaper briefs or like some little CNN blurb, and you kind of go, "Well, no, there's a lot more there." Um, I mean, you know, I think of myself as the guy from Die Hard. Like, I'm a thief, but I'm a pretty good thief. Uh, <laughs> and they, that was a case where there's like a little story about Teller suing this magician over a magic trick. Um, I called my editor, Peter, at Esquire, and I kind of said I wanted to do this thing. And he's like, well, what's the story? And I didn't know. And that's one of the that's one of the rare times. In fact, it might be the only time where I went into the story not really knowing if it was going to become a story. Like, normally when I'm on the road, Esquire was not a place of huge financial resources. So it's not like we could take flyers and just be like, well, maybe there's a story out there. Like, that never happened. And we never killed anything. I mean, it was, if you got an assignment you had to deliver um and but teller was penn and teller were coming to windsor ontario which is like a five-hour drive for me and i got in my truck and i told teller i was like listen can we have a conversation i don't know what will become of it but um maybe a story about this situation uh and we met at the casino in windsor and sat in a lunch spot and talked for a couple hours and teller is amazing i mean he's like one of the most fascinating people i've ever met um it's extremely, sh- extremely intelligent. Oh my god, too. yeah, genius. yeah. Uh, and, yeah, like a genius. Right? And it's almost a crime that he's the silent one. Penn, right. Penn is amazing at talking and patter and everything like that. But when Teller talks, he talks in these beautiful, like just prose. He was a Latin teacher, you know. Like he, he's he he he's so smart and so articulate, and just the way he describes magic. And so I spent this couple hours with him. Went to their show. And I knew, I was like, okay, now I have to write about this person. And I told Peter, I was like, I'm still not 100% sure what the, the story is, but there's something. And then going back to that Esquire being in the most amazing place in the world to work, Peter's like, okay, go for it. And then I just vanished like I occasionally do into some strange world. And in this case, it was magic. And I started learning how to do tricks and became obsessed with magic and talked to inventors of tricks and... Um, you know, other magicians and God, I loved it. That was one of most, like my favorite reporting. Oh man, I'm getting like nostalgic thinking about it. It was so fun. So fun. Well, it comes across in the story too. You've got this great moment in the story, Chris, that, I mean, you had me at the very beginning of the piece. The piece is wonderful. I, and I recommend everybody who's listening to this to, 
to find the piece and we'll try to link to it in the newsletter. Uh, but you have this moment where Teller is talking about being a kid and yeah. getting the Howdy Doody magic kit. Yeah. He, he was watching TV. Uh, he was recuperating from a heart ailment. And um, it's really it's like his first magic trick. And he describes it in this way. I want to read the quote. This is an absolute miracle I can do with my hands. He describes about the magic trick. And you write, he says today in the present tense as though no time has passed. I mean, I'm already all in, but at that moment, <laughs> you totally have me. I mean, it's just, the fact that it's it's real. He's 64 years old at this moment as he's telling you this, Chris. And I just love the way. And this is one paragraph. It's this perfect little gem of a paragraph of the story. And I re- reread it last night. I was like, man, that's good. It's just good. He you know? he he brought out the best. And I'm a sucker for I'm a sucker for people. There's a great scene in uh, the movie adaptation which is based on The Orchid Thief by Susan Orlean. And um, I think it's Meryl Streep's character. I think it's the Meryl Streep who says, I'm passionate about people who have passion. And that, yes. that for me is like, I love when people love things. And I especially love it when they love nerdy things or things that like are kind of insignificant seeming but are actually these really beautiful. And magic is one of those, you know, people think of pulling a rabbit out of a hat and sort of corny magicians. And what Teller does is, beautiful i mean when he did shadows and that the first time i saw shadows which is the trick that got stolen i mean the crowd was silent except for like people crying like you could hear people crying in the dark and it was just you know i was you talk about being all in i was all in i mean i was like oh my god this is one of the most beautiful things um and i wanted to write about like this guy who cares so much a funny thing about that story so i became obsessed Teller said a trick, I can't remember the exact quote, but something like a trick is a beautiful lie. And I wrote an ending to that story that was fake. I wrote an ending to that story that his dad had built the easel that Shadows has performed with and that he'd left it in the garage. It's a present like in the afterlife. I had this, and I asked Teller if it was okay. And Teller was like, yeah, it's fine with me. I mean, it, you know, like, yeah. I mean, he said, the one thing I will warn you is that if you tell one lie, then everything else becomes a lie. Um, but, you know, he's, I'm fine with the story. And, and I sent it in, and I didn't tell my editor that I'd made it up. And Peter said, um, hey, is the ending real? Wow. And I was like, uh... And I didn't... A magician never reveals his secrets. I went through this whole thing, and I went, you know, Peter, no, it's not. It's fake. I made it up. And he was like, I, we can't, I don't think we can do that. Um, and then during the fact checking process, any information about the other magician, the thief came from Teller. The fact checker was like, what was your source on this? I'd be like, Teller, what was your source on this? Well, Teller sent me that. Is there any existence of this on the internet? No, I got these screenshots from Teller, but the site's down. And then Teller has spent his life with these long, complicated cons basically these tricks and i was and i had this moment where the after i hung up the phone and i went oh my god it's a trick the whole thing's a trick like gerard bacardi doesn't exist this other magician does oh my god (laughs) and i wrote that ending i was like or is it you know i don't know and that and the ending kind of got rescued by this sudden fear that none of it was real 
As yeah, it, turns I love, out, it was all. I love real. the ending. Yeah, it was I all love real. the ending. It was all real. It turned out, but the ending yeah. is is fantastic. The kicker is great. But and, that kicker uh, came out because I'd written this totally stupid lie, and the fact checker Bob Scheffler, who's amazing, was like, uh, "You know, I'm not 100 percent sure this is all. This is going to pass." <laughs> I was but, like, oh, you know, Chris, I love that that you wanted to write a sort of trick ending in a story about magic. And then when you're asked that question by your, edit- your editor, you can't lie to your editor. I mean, yeah. even even under the guise of magic, even That's, though I, I, no. I know you were going through that sort of self-justification of trying to pass it off, but uh, anybody, any young writer out there, never do lie. Do not lie to your editor. No, no, Do no, no, not no. lie to your editor under any circumstances, editor, even no. when you're writing a story about uh, somebody who says, yeah, a trick is a beautiful lie. Uh, yeah, That's do not. The, it, oh, no, yeah. I folded under questioning really quickly. Um, <laughs> well, that's good. That was a smart career move. It was a smart move sure. a smart career move for sure. Oh, my God, if that had gone out. I mean, it's one of those things that you kind of sweat about afterwards, but... God, I so love doing that story. Yeah, it's a, it's an amazing story. I, I I love it and and really enjoyed rereading it. And everybody should should take a look. So the piece, one of the pieces you won the National Magazine Award for, and it's a story that uh, is just incredible. Is the things that carried him. And you told me it's one of the stories you're most proud of, but you don't love it, which is very intriguing in the sense that it was hard to do and it was not a good time in your life. So explain that to me. Explain what the story is for our listeners, and then and then why you don't love it even though it's just, that's amazing. Uh, so the story is about um, how a soldier, an American soldier killed in Iraq, how their body comes home because they're all buried at, at home. And uh, a lot of my stories, I would describe them as sort of process stories, like just like how things happen. Um, you know, well, deep down, a lot of my stories are just like, why did that happen the way it did? And, and often they're looking at things that are pretty ordinary. John McPhee is a huge influence of mine. And, you know, he can make a whole book about oranges, read amazing. And he'll write about how a FedEx package gets delivered. And it sounds like the most fascinating thing in the world. Um, and that's that's sort of where that story came from. Uh, when I say I don't, I mean, I, I am proud of it. It's certainly the thing that um, I get identified with the most. Um, it's, it's the story that... You know, if uh, I speak at a class, it's the story that the professor assigns. Um, I'm really proud of it. I think it's a good piece of work. It's a good piece of reporting. Um, It won the National Magazine Award, which was nice. Um, But it was really hard. You know, I talked to 101 people. It took me about eight months. I talked to 101 people. Some very large percentage of them cried at some point during our chats. I cried, you know, I feel this stuff. I don't, I don't subscribe to this sort of myth of objectivity. Like I, you know, sitting in Joey's mom's kitchen when she makes me cherry pie, like I'm bawling my eyes out. And, um, and then after it, after that story was done, you know, it was such a, I had such a single minded pursuit for that eight months. Like once it was over, I kind of felt a bit lost, I guess. Um, and it really stuck. Like that experience really stuck for a long time. Uh, and I, I have, I have had sort of issues with depression and um, you know suicidal thoughts and stuff like that. And the the time immediately after that story um, was probably the darkest. You know, in terms of that stuff, was sort of a very dark time for me. And um, uh, so I associate that. I don't know about you. Like I associate. We only do so many stories and. I can associate them so clearly with certain periods of my life um, that yes. 
for sure. Know, that that yeah. I can't think of the story without thinking of that. Um, so I can't think of things that carried him without thinking of, you know, uh, standing on the Golden Gate Bridge and thinking of throwing myself off it. So it's it's like a. So I'm very proud of it. I'm really glad I did it. Uh, it's probably the best thing I'll ever do. Um, but I, it's it's not happy. Like it doesn't bring me sort of joy to think about it. Was the emotionally wrenching experience of the reporting and, and all those tears of the people you're interviewing as well as your own? I mean, did that lead you into that dark place after that story? Was I don't I don't know how. I don't know if it's directly. I mean, I you know a lot of depression is sort of chemicals and mm-hmm. who knows radio waves or whatever uh, the way electricity runs through on a particular moment. But it it um, it didn't help. I know that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it and it it it. Whether it was coincidental or I don't know, but I, I I can't say that doing that story helped in any way. What was the piece you did after that? What was the first story that you had published after that story? And uh, did it help? I don't remember. You don't remember? I do remember. I had to do I had to do a celebrity story. I feel so bad about it now. I had to do a celebrity story. I think it was Scarlett Johansson, a perfectly nice person. And I do remember sitting in a diner. And she was telling me that her favorite word was beans. And I was just like, I don't care. <laughs> I can't. For the first time in my career, I can't even pretend that I care about this. Like, I don't. Boy, oh boy, do I not give a shit what your favorite word is. Like, it, it, and it was not fair to, you know, to go from one to the other. You know, David Halberstam, that was his sort of career strategy. He'd go from like a really serious book about like the Korean War and then he'd write about baseball. <laughs> then he'd go, you know, the auto industry and then sports. And um, I had a hard time adjusting, you know, from one to the other. How much did you like doing celebrity profiles? I, well, mean, I sure there, didn't. I sure didn't like yeah, it. Yeah, that's what that's the sense that I've gotten from talking with you previously, but, but also just in reading them, they're, they're, I don't know, they're... Certainly when you're writing about the things that carried him, war, um, even some of your sports stories are just, you know, they're monumental, some of the stuff that you write about. And then to go and you have a limited amount of time with a celebrity who talks about her favorite word being beans. Oh, oh. Right? It's just, but but I guess it's sort of the way F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote short stories when novels were what he really cared about, right? It was a way to sort of pay the bills and do the pieces that matter. Well, we were staff writers. You know, you're, it's, your, yeah. it's your job. I mean, yeah. you, you can't be precious about it. And I, you know, I tell young writers all the time who are very sort of protective. You know, I'm doing a story now for Wired. I got an email last night that they need, you know, a couple hundred words cut to make it fit. Well, I'm going to cut those words. I'm not going to bitch about it. Like it's, 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 you're paying me for this service and I'll perform it the best I can. And hopefully you will pay me money to do it again. Like that's how I approach this stuff. So for me, you know, that, that the celebrity stuff was not what I would have preferred to have done, but we sort of had an agreement at Esquire that we all would take a couple of years. You know, because no one, no one particularly loved them. I don't think. Now, I'll also say there were guys at Esquire who were so good at them, and they are a very particular challenge. I mean, if you read a really good celebrity profile, in a way, that's like the most monumental feat in journalism. Um, because yeah, I agree. Because they're sure. they're really hard, and I don't yeah. want to at all denigrate the people who do it well. Because it's a tall. It's so much easier to write a, a resonant seeming story about war than it is about 
you know, Angelina Jolie, but like it, it's a job. And so we would do, and sometimes they were great. You know, I had some good times. Justin Timberlake was amazing. George Clooney was amazing. Javier Bardem. Great. You know, I enjoyed having, spending time with them. Those stories are fine. Um, but sometimes they're just awful and it, it, it's, you know, it's not, not my favorite. Which one was your favorite celebrity, celebrity profile? Clooney? Clooney, Clooney's amazing. Uh, my favorite one was probably Justin Timberlake uh, because I went in it with such low expectations. Um, one of the terrible truths about Esquire was, uh, you know, because no one ever left, I was the young one. You know, at like 40, <laughs> I, was the, I was the kid. And so I would get like the young celebrities because I was going to connect with the, with the 21 year old, you know, like I, I wasn't going to be like the pervert, you know, hanging out with Taylor Swift. It was like, so, so I got to sign Justin Timberlake. I had such low expectations. I was like, holy moly. Okay. Justin Timberlake. Uh, and he was doing a movie. I think it was called in time. It's like a sci-fi movie. So he was appearing at comic-con in San Diego. And I flew out to comic-con and I watched his little panel and, you know, girls cheering. And then I was to meet him at his hotel. He opens the door and he goes, hey, you're Bert and I'm Ernie. And I said, <laughs> I said, I'm Chris and you're Justin. And he said, no. And he went to his closet and he pulled out Bert and Ernie costumes, like with the heads. And he goes, no, you're Bert, I'm Ernie, and we're going to Comic-Con. And I was like, I love you. Yes, I for am, sure. That's amazing. That's I, so cool. I, I had my pants off like two minutes later, putting on this costume. I said, I said, man, I can't believe how fast you got my pants off. He says, you know, it's a gift. And we laugh <laughs> and we put on our costumes and we walked around. And for him, it was like the first time in like seven years he'd been out in public without security. And people were taking pictures with us. And he looked at me and he goes, I just remembered they're taking pictures with us because we're Ernie and Bert. Not because, <laughs> and I was like, dude, there, there was like a 14 year old girl between us at one point. And I said, if you take your head off, she's going to die. She will die. She will die in this place. And, and he was like, I can't do it. You don't know what it's like. And, and then at the end he did it and it was mayhem and awful. And so it became a story that I actually quite like about fame and sort of the perils of it. I have to go back and, and read that. It was I, fun. It was yeah, fun. Yeah, it sounds but great. There's this terrible picture. We had to ask, you know, I, we, we went around, I can't remember how we did it, Facebook or somewhere. We were like, did you take a picture of Ernie and Bert at Comic-Con? That was Justin Timberlake, <laughs> one of our writers. <laughs> and we could use the pictures. And uh, there's a picture. The one they got was me, like, groping a Playboy, a cover of Playboy. I thought it was hilarious that Bert was being a perv. And, and Justin Timberlake's kind of standing there awkwardly to the side. <laughs> my big gut, my Bert costume. He's looking all svelte in his Ernie costume. It was like, but... Man, I had all the time in the world for Justin Timberlake after that. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so we got to talk about your Roger Ebert story, which I know is special to you, special to me as a reader. You know, your love of him came across um, and his kindness to you certainly came across. The story could have been a story about Roger Ebert's cancer fight, and it wasn't. It was a story really about what Ebert had lost um, and what he had overcome. And so it was this story really, I think, and I think this was, you did this intentionally. I want to ask you if you did, um, that, that could have been maudlin. It could have fallen in all sorts of traps, avoided them all because it was really how Ebert dealt with this and was able to sort of start this new life. 
Uh, and it was really more about Ebert's life than it was about his looming death. And is that a fair assessment of it? And is that really what you were setting out to do? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's fair. And I, I mean, I did go in, I went into that loving Roger from the beginning. I mean, I loved his writing. Yeah, you were a fan. You were a fanboy. I was a fan. I pitched yeah. it because I wanted to meet him. Um, and uh, holy moly, Don, did he meet every expectation. Like, he was the most generous, kind presence. Like, oh, I was so nervous walking up to his house. And I was like, how are you? You know, he couldn't talk. I was like, how are we going to do these interviews? And how is this going to work? And his wife, Chaz, met me downstairs at their townhouse. And she was, she's like the gatekeeper. And so I think she was going to suss out whether I was a creep or um, not to be trusted. And so we talked for a while. And then she went to get Roger. And yeah, so you had to pass that test. I had to pass that test. Yeah. And then Roger yeah. came down. And um, and we just started talking. And, and he was just the best just the best person. Like he was just awesome. And I, I guess the way I would tell that story. So um, there's a photograph that ran with that story. Uh, it was the full, it was a full page at the beginning of the story. And it's a, just a full frontal portrait of Roger who had lost his jaw to cancer. And there hadn't been sort of a really uh, clear picture of what he had looked like after the surgery before. Um, and Roger hated that picture. Like when it first came out, he was upset by it. He didn't like how big it was. And all he could see was the lower half of his face. Like all he could see was the damage. And I was saying to him, like, Roger, everyone who sees this picture is going to look at the top half of your face. Like his eyes in that picture are just strength. And, yeah. and, and I was like, Roger, I know you're so close to this and I know, but, you're looking at it backward. Like everyone will be looking at the top and that's, you know, you're talking about whether it was about death or life. Like for me, it was a really life affirming man. You hang out with someone who can't eat, who can't drink and who can't talk. Um, you know, we we're talking earlier about my sort of spells and boy, does it sort of recalibrate you? Yeah. You know, like, sure. um, yeah. and there's a scene we, we went, we went out for dinner, Chaz, Roger and, I went out for dinner and it was delicious. It was, it was fish and sauce and, and I was sitting and Roger's sitting there not eating, uh, you know, cause he's going to get his bag of goo later in the day. And, and I, I just talked about food the way you talk about food. I was like, Oh my God, this is so delicious. Um, and then I stopped and I kind of went, Oh, Roger, I'm really sorry. Like, you know, I, that's, I screwed up. I'm sorry. And he wrote, you know, because he wrote notes because he couldn't talk. And he wrote, no, no, you're eating for me. And he underlined for and handed this note over the table. And, you know, you have a moment like that. And that's my job, Don. Yeah. I did that for work. Like, I got paid to do that. And, man, it was life-changing. Like, it was just, he's the nicest. And he I found out he died on Twitter, of all the awful places. Right. Um, and it... it um, Man, I still remember I had, a, I had a carton of milk in my hand. I dropped it because I was just like, shit, like this beautiful saint, you know, gone. It was just a, he's just the best person. Yeah, that, that moment in the story where he says you're eating for me and underlines the word for, uh, it, it, it kills me. It killed me. 
Yeah, I didn't know how to write it because I'm not in the story. I think I say a friend. I you do. Um, you do. You don't. You don't say it's you. You say it's someone. You say it's someone or friend. Or someone. Yeah, yeah, that's me. And I, you know, I, it was one of those. Just yeah, it was just one of those. The whole thing was just, and that was one of those divine. You know, he said, "What do you want to do?" And I was like, "The one thing I want to do is go see a movie with you." And so he's like, "Well, I got to review a movie tomorrow." And it was uh, what was it called? Broken Embraces. Um, and it was about the movie was about a film director who'd lost his sight. And Roger loved it. And he was just enraptured by this movie. And he, he, his review, he gave it four stars. I mean, we could have gone to see Transformers 2. Do you know what I mean? And it completely changes the whole thing. Like, that story was just one of those beautiful, like, man, so all lucky. The, all the planets aligned. All the and, planets aligned. I was so lucky to get to do that. It's just an amazing piece. What was the reaction of readers to it? Overwhelming. Which also, yeah. I mean, Roger didn't like the story either at first what did he like about the story he thought it focused too much on his illness Mm -hmm. the same thing he had the same interpretation of the story as he did of the photo Um, but see i thought i thought as i said to you at the at the top of our conversation about this i thought you didn't i thought the brilliance of it was it was all about it's all about perspective it's all right it's It's all all about about perspective perspective. and it, it just he saw it as the damage done and I was like, no, no, this is about the damage overcome. Right. Uh, and then luckily the response, the reader response, that story got more hits. Not that I ever measure anything by this, but that story got more hits than anything I've ever done. And Roger saw the response. And how many How many hits did it get? Oh, you can say. I don't, I don't know the exact number. Millions. Millions. Yeah. And it was one of those things. It was super gratifying because people read it all. the. You know, now they can tell you when people stop reading. I know it's awful. <laughs> oh that, man, that, Chris, it's it's awful. When I see that data, I'm like, don't tell me. I don't don't wanna, tell me that. You know, they'll they'll say, well, this story, oh, it was great, it had two million hits. I'm like, I don't want to hear how many people finished it because they know, they yes, know down to yeah, they and they and I'm like, I don't want to hear that because you know, ninety five to ninety nine percent of people don't. But yeah. but, but that yeah, one no. they read that one they yeah. got to the end, and that yeah. was like just one of those. That was just a magical. The whole story was just a magical experience. And when you found out that it was not a national magazine award. Oh, I spit uh, the dummy. I spit finals. the dummy. Yes, you spit the dummy. So let's just let's talk about that because I do want to talk a little bit about Twitter with you and I think this was a good segue into that. Um you were furious on Twitter and then you got trolled by well, a no, zillion people. Well, I mean, well what what happened? You tell me. I had a blog at the time. Oh yeah, right. That's right. Uh, that's right. Son of Son, son of Bold Venture. Son yes. of Bold Venture. Yes. Wow. I remember it well. No, I remember well. I, I used to read it all the time. Your blog was great. It was probably. I think in hindsight, it was a mistake. Um, the, the whole thing. I probably just should have been like J.R. Moringer and just been like invisible, and I probably would have done a lot better with life. I think, but um, I I didn't get nominated at the time, and I can say this honestly at the time. Awards meant a lot to me. They don't mean anything to me now. Um, and I used to hear people say that and would be like, you're lying. You're just saying that to make yourself feel better about not winning them. Um, and when enough bad shit happens to you, <laughs> you know, your, your, your calculations <laughs> sort of change. But at the time, life was pretty good. I'd won two National Magazine Awards in pretty short order. They meant a lot to me. Um, for a year, I was being told how Roger was going to win for best profile, uh, that it was a lock. 
Um, and then it didn't even get nominated. And Granger called me up and he goes, I don't know what happened. That was a layup. It was a layup. Uh, and I was so sad. Um, and I, it, 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 I wrote, I write for, ever since I was a kid, I wrote for like therapy. It's what I did. And so I wrote this post that wasn't like all the other stories are shit or I should have won. It was, man, I am really bummed out that I did not get nominated for this. Like I blew it. I got, well, this- I have, I have the tweet. I want to read the tweet. You well, said, I tweeted uh, something about 300 pounds, my legs. Yes. You said, ah, but I got to be honest. Crushed that my Ebert story didn't get a nod. Legs feel like they're 300 pounds. Fuck. Yeah. That's how I felt. I felt like I'd been given the greatest material in the world and I blew it. Because any writer worth anything would take the material that Roger gave them and win an award with it. That's, see, that that's, was my calculus. But, that was my but calculus that, then. But that, of course, is the absolute worst way to view it that it's of a course. failure right that it's a failure of you because some judges sitting in a room didn't pick it you know it's like the jack schaefer my buddy jack schaefer he says all prizes are shit including the pulitzers because there's politics behind every selection yeah there's horse trading that goes on you you years that you should win you don't get you don't become a finalist other years you have absolutely no uh, you know, you really shouldn't win. You do win. I mean, there's, and, and he's right. And you can't, I, I know I'm preaching to the choir because I know you've come around on this, but you can't judge your own merit as a writer um, based on somebody else's opinion who's just sitting in a room, you know, with a bunch of clips yeah. and can't wait to get out of there to go have a cocktail. That's uh, the thing. But then five yeah. years now, five years later, however long it's been, I can say, well, way more than that, actually, seven or eight years later, I can say, that was one of the best experiences. Right. I got to hang out with Roger Ebert. I got to go to a movie with Roger Ebert. I got to call Roger Ebert like a friend of mine. Like that's worth more than anything. But it's not just that. It's also you touched millions of readers. You you experience millions of readers were able to experience that great um, privilege that you had with Roger Ebert through your great story, and that matters a hell of a lot more than you know something to put on the wall in a frame. It's nice of you to No, I mean it, man. I really do. I I, I feel, I I really feel strongly about this. I mean, I've won prizes and look, they've helped me get the dream job of my life, which is to write for a sports magazine, which I wanted to do as a kid. And so I'm grateful. They are a pathway. They help. That's the thing. They help. They they help. They matter. There's no question. And, but, but by the same token, to to react the way you did. And look, I've reacted that way too. So I'm not, I'm not. Yeah. You probably just kept it to yourself though. I made the mistake of, and what happened was. Well, Twitter didn't, Twitter didn't exist when, when I felt like I got robbed. So if it, if it had, because look, and, and you and I have, you know, and you and I have even tangled on Twitter. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, a couple times before we got to know each other. I was smiling before, Chris, when you said, you know, once you get to know me, and that happened with me. I mean, you know, you said a couple things on Twitter that rubbed me the wrong way. Those were in the days when I was a hothead on Twitter. Now I just ignore all the trolling. Yeah, I can it's blow just, it off now. Yeah, 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 you can blow it off as you get older and more mature. But, yeah. and you and we tangled. And, I, you know, yeah. and I was an idiot. You were at Grantland. I can't even remember what you had said. I was still at the time. I criticized and- a story at the um, Yahoo beat the Miami Herald on a football corruption story or that's something. what it was that's and i was like was. i was like man it's kind of shameful that the miami herald didn't have this and you were like who are you to talk about you know invest and you're you're obviously this like very seasoned and established investigative reporter which i am not like we're different we both write long stories but but you have reporting skills that i don't have like i've never filed a freedom of information request in my life and so it's it you were you bristled you were like these are my friends you're fucking with like 
don't talk like that. And I kind of went, yeah, I mean, I get that, but isn't it kind of weird that, <laughs> you know, the hometown paper had this happen under their nose and Yahoo comes in and scoops them. Um, but you were back. The thing that happens with Twitter so often is people back up their friends and then it becomes this thing. Yes. And I would never fault anybody for backing up their friends. Of course right. you back up your buddies. Like that's a noble thing. Like half of my Twitter spats were just people backing up their friends. And it's like, well, quick, I, I get that. Like, and the Roger thing, I get kind of, I was not prepared for the blowback to that because I was like, well, is it weird to be sad about not getting something you hope to get? Like, and I think how, it, I think I got taken as arrogance that I was saying I deserved it or that it should win or that a lot of people were like, you've won too, like shut your mouth. Um, and I get it. Uh, although I still am like slightly baffled by the response to that whole thing. Um, I think there was a little of that. I think, look, I think there's, once you have these sort of, there's not a lot of these jobs to go around. Once yeah. you get one, uh, people recognize it as an incredible privilege and gift. And which it is. It is. Which it, it, which is. it is. Which it is. We're, we're so fortunate. I mean, yeah. you know, you're, you're now, you're now going to be writing screenplays and you got, you got a two book contract. I mean, there are, writers dreaming about just having one of those two things of course um, no, you know. no. so and i i will be the first to recognize like how much of my career comes down to luck but that's another reason that award meant something yes because yeah. like what what people sometimes forget i think is like at us i was on a one-year deals like i was on one-year contracts i wanted to be renewed you know like i i <laughs> the awards help you know apart from a really nice night in new york with your friends uh you know they don't hurt your career. Oh yeah, no, it's it's hardwired to your livelihood. Yeah, and so yeah. for me, it was like there was all these things. So I get from the outside how it seemed like sour grapes and huffy, and and I definitely cultivated a trip like a reputation for um, being lippy, I guess, or whatever you want to call it. And, and yeah, and and it, and it didn't help. One time, I think you got into a spat with somebody, and and the person you know might have had an egg as a Twitter avatar and nine followers or something. And, you know, you said, well, I can't hear you because I got my national magazine oh, yeah, awards yeah, in, yeah, my, in yeah. my ears or something. And I- a, but see, that's the thing. That's, <laughs> that's what happens. So that's a Patrick Waugh line. Patrick Waugh, Jeremy Roenick was criticized. So this is what happens to me all the time where I know the reference or I know the joke. And the thing is on Twitter, it doesn't. So like that is literally Patrick Waugh, who is one of my patron saints, um, Jeremy Roenick was making fun of Patrick Waugh because Jeremy Roenick beat him on a dangle or whatever. And Patrick Waugh was like, tell Jeremy I can't hear him because I have my two Stanley Cup ring plugging my ear. And that was my reference. Like, it was just a joke, but it comes off as whatever. I definitely have made. Don, I've made so many mistakes. No, you haven't. You're, <laughs> no, you're being way too no, hard on yourself. No, Listen, I Chris. Have. Here, I recognize it. I've made so many mistakes. But, but, here, but here's the thing about that. People don't know that context. I mean, Twitter is such a silly medium. It really is. I mean, I, you know, our mutual friend, Wright Thompson, who got off of Twitter, and I know you're now taking a hiatus for yeah. about a month. And, and you know, it, it's it's a time suck. It's, it's an ego stroke. I mean, I often joke, you know, um, I don't get enough compliments from my wife at home, so I go to I Twitter. Go to Twitter, for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I go to Twitter for them, you yeah. know, because I, I get, you know, I, I land a piece, and man, there's a lot of nice reply, people saying lots of nice things about me. So that's why I hang in there. But I mean, do we? Re- is it worth it? I mean, I, I keep I debating know. to just pull the plug on it. Really, yeah, I, I debate you know. it back and forth. For me, it's like the thing that people don't understand, or some people don't understand about writing is, and why people are like, why is Twitter so popular with journalists? Well, because we're all a bunch of insecure egomaniacs at home alone. 
Like, yes, we need, it's, and, and it's and it's our it's basically our water cooler. It's our it's newsroom. Like, it's, it's where you yeah. get like validation. It's where you get gossip. It's where because I I used to go to a newsroom. Now I'm sitting here in my tiny house. Like it's it's it's, it's how I talk to people. Like it's it's sort of um, so that yeah. I go back and forth. I'm I'm taking a break just to see how I feel. And I gotta say, I haven't been on there in a few days now, and like I can already feel my shoulders kind of relaxing a little bit. Um, yeah, I may do the same. I'm, just, I may do a 30-day, just a 30-day break. Just a colonic. colonic. Yeah. You know what it was doing? My life is really good at the moment. I had a really horrible year last year. My life is probably as good as it's ever been. And then I can go on Twitter and feel terrible about the world. And it's, it's like, I don't need that. I, I want to feel good. And, you know, when it first started, Chris, and then we're going to get to the lightning round here. Um, when it first started, I remember everybody was so polite. You know, I joined it in yeah. 2009. And... There were, there were mostly just journalists that I was following that were following me and we were all just sort of applauding each other's fine work and we were yeah. all very respectful of each other. And just with each passing year, it's gotten more and more toxic and overrun by trolls and by resentful people that want to find any way they can to bring you down. And Yeah. And it's just, you just, you take it in or you don't. I used to take it in. I used right. to take it in. And honestly, like the garbage that happened to me last year everything else pales. So it's like, okay, I can take whatever you have to bring me now. Yeah, like no, and that, yeah, it, put, it puts everything in perspective for sure. So there's a lot of stuff that we didn't get to, unfortunately, because of lack of time. One of them is your great uh, Zanesville story, Animals, which I love, which we will link to. But very quickly, I just, because I love this story. So you had to go head to head with Chris Heath, who was there from GQ, and just tell the abridged version of that of what that was like. The abridged version, story. yeah, the abridged. I know. I realize that that's a tough, a tough order here to tell the abridged well, version. Well, no, the, of it. the abridged version was colon nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> that, that works. I was that doing, works. I was doing Zanesville. One of those weird karmic or cosmic coincidences. I showed up in Zanesville like six weeks after the. The animal. This was the the guy like Terry Thompson let go of like fifty lions and tigers right. and and the police came and shot them. Like six weeks later, I went to do like the follow up. The dust has settled. What happened here? And I'm sitting there uh, with the sheriff. We have like a two hour interview. It's amazing. I mean, I'm sure you've had these experiences where you you're just like, oh, I've got something on the line here. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and you. Oh, yeah. And at the end of it, I said, uh, and I have this recorded, luckily, because it's hilarious now. But at the time, I said, um, can you do me a favor and just not talk to anybody else until my story comes out? And he goes, I've got one more interview at 3 o'clock. Mind you, it's like 2.55 right now. i got one more interview at 3 o'clock, and then I'm done. I'm not talking anymore. And I said, okay, as long as it's not with GQ. And he just kind of made a face. <laughs> and I was like, is it GQ? And he goes, yep. I'm like, are you shitting me? Nope. And we went back and forth for a couple minutes until I believed him. And then I was like, oh, no. And I ran downstairs. I went out the fire escape. I was like, please don't tell him I'm here. I ran down the fire escape. You know, and I called Peter, my boss. And I said, the good news is the story's going to be awesome. The bad news is GQ showed up on the exact same afternoon. (laughs) Like, what do we do? Uh, And we had this conversation. Do we bail? Do we pursue it and try to beat them? How do we? And so it became this, like, terrible cloak and dagger thing for a, I had pneumonia Zanesville's a dump my truck got broken into it was oh, pouring rain God, and I'm chasing Chris Heath who's great uh, you know all over Zanesville trying to talk to people before he did and you know it was just it was so stressful and this goes back people again you know I behave badly after that story an editor at GQ said something like 
Oh, we always knew Jones was going to do like the basic cop story. Um, oh, I remember that criticism. And yes. I was like, yeah. and I remember your response. To well, because I was yeah. like, I didn't know I was going to. I was like, shut your mouth. Like, I didn't know I was going to do that. Like, you know, and I said something horrible about Chris's story. Um, that was just stung feelings like a skin knee, a boy with a skin knee. And, um, and, uh, and it became this thing. And then, of course, Chris wins the National Magazine Award. So I'm completely owned. I was like, okay, all right, I'm going to shut my mouth now and never speak again about anything. Uh, so it was one of those, I like my Zanesville story. Chris wrote a really good story. Um, I'm sorry it became like whatever it became. It was born of competition and one-year contracts and your arch magazine nemesis, not Chris, but GQ, on the same story on the same day. I mean, it... It was, it was unpleasant. Was that the was that the the lone time in your career that you really were up against somebody in real time? On no, a piece, man. Or that well, it, ha- it happened other times. It happened back to back. It happened with Zanesville, and then my next big story was a profile of Robert Caro. Oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. Oh, and yeah. it came out the same yeah. New York Times magazine had right. a cover story, and it was like, what is going on? Like yeah. two stories, and you know, not to sound whatever, those are two of the better stories I did, I think, and. Yeah, your Carol piece is fantastic. Thanks, great. But they, piece. but they both great got piece. completely diluted by the fact that there was another massive piece the same day. Like, right, it, right, uh, and it was back to back. So that's what I have no excuse for being shitty. I'm just not a fully formed human. A <laughs> um, couple of those things just went sideways on me. All right, we're going to do the lightning round, which is a... So this is someone I know? Someone you know. Uh, might be an editor, might be a writer. Uh, I want to keep that... Pretty open because I have a feeling you're going to crack this one with Maurice and our previous guest did. And so these are some questions that uh, are informed by really going deep with you over the years. Number one, Gosh. here we go. Wait, and you, do I answer the question? You answer the question. Don't okay. don't if you if you want to venture a guess at any time, you can. Okay, you may know it after the first question. Okay. That'll be a record. Okay. Uh, number one, if George Clooney had sent you a cleaning bill for bleeding all over his fancy couch. Would Granger have let you expense it? Yes. Granger let me expense a massive quantity of weed when I wrote about Ricky Williams in Australia and losses in a poker game. Yes. Granger where, would have let me where was that. the Where was the poker game? Who was the poker game? Again? That was also with Ricky. <laughs> <laughs> Do not play poker with Ricky Williams. He will clean your ass out. <laughs> how, much, how much money did you lose to Ricky Williams? Oh, hundreds of dollars. Wow. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a pretty... Crazy, like a pretty degenerate card player. And uh, I was like, well, I'm going to smoke this, you know, hippie. He, he owned my soul. And were you stoned while you were playing? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. that's that was part yeah. of Williams's, you know, deal. Right? Oh, he I mean, like, God, no, he played me to perfect. He, he had, he did, I had my guard down. We were in this pizza shop after hours playing with this, like, Australian pizza shop owner who's making pizzas, coming out of the oven at three in the morning, playing poker, smoking weed. Ricky's rolled a joint the size of a trombone. And so the weed and the poker losses was under entertainment on your expense account? No, I it, I literally, it's my favorite expense invoice ever because it's, I itemized it. Poker, dot, 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 uh, no receipt. Uh, weed, <laughs> no receipt. Uh, whale watching, receipt number 14, $40. You know, it was like, it was the most fun I ever had on a story. Do you, have a co- you still have a copy of it? I don't. My boss did. Oh, he kept man. it, uh, but I don't know if it's still there. That's but one of the great expense reports of all time. It was. It was. It's one yeah. of my. It's one of my crowning achievements. All right, number two. You don't have a guess yet, I assume. Well, I've told that story a lot. So that could okay, be- 
All right. Number two, where can I get a copy of the Us Weekly that oh. speculated you might be Naomi Watts's secret boyfriend? Oh, that's dirty pool. Yeah, uh, very much so. Uh, wow, that could be a couple of people. Um, I don't know where. So that story is from my first celebrity profile was Naomi Watts. Lovely. Gosh, she was so nice. Um, uh, I thought all celebrity profiles would be that way. We, we spent like nine hours together. You know, we went to the Santa Monica Pier and out for lunch. And she was really, we connect, you know, in my head. I was like, oh my God, we really like each other. You know, we have all these things in common. Her dad was the roadie for Pink Floyd who laughs on Dark Side of the Moon. I got high to Dark Side of the Moon. We should be together. You know, it's like one of those things. And uh, you're already you're already picturing a wonderful life together. Oh my God, I'd been married like six weeks at the time. And I was like, man, life is funny. Um and like a couple of weeks later, Us Weekly had like a double truck picture of us on the on the bumper cars at the Santa Monica Pier. Naomi Watts and her new special friend. Um, and you were laughing uproariously in the photo. I am laughing uproariously. Yeah. I, I, and she had just struck me. So I looked particularly uh, not worthy of Naomi Watts's uh, company. But that, um, that's, I'm glad you said that. But that that has also been described to me almost word for word. The way you oh, it's, in the it's, photo. It is not just... a, she looks amazing. <laughs> She's, of course, sitting on this bumper car and she looks incredible. And I look like I, I just like I, a schmo, like, a, like, like a, a loser. Schmo. I was yeah. wearing a bowling shirt. Like, oh, my God. All right, number three. What's okay. the best song to listen to on airplanes, and why do some songs sound better on airplanes? Oh, wow. This is someone who does know me pretty well. Yeah. I love um, this question, by the way, uh, because I, I want to talk about this, because you, you and I have this in common. We love music when we're writing, yes. I believe. And anyway, yes. but answer the question first, and then we'll get to the What's the music. best song to listen on airplanes? Yeah. I love listening to stuff like Sigur Rós on an airplane. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, really sort of atmosphere like soaring stuff you know and the light comes through the window a particular way and so many of my songs that are favorites i first heard on an airplane where you know i just i think my favorite song of all time is probably the trapeze swinger by iron and wine and i first heard that on an airplane i love iron and wine oh my god yeah they're great so good and that song is incredible and it's it's um, and so why do songs sound better on airplanes? Because you're doing this amazing... I, I don't like flying. I mean, ironically, is it ironic? I, I don't like flying. I drive... If it's less than a 12-hour drive, I'll drive. Uh, you know, I went to this writer's thing last week or two weeks ago in Georgia, and I drove. Uh, it's like 17 hours, because I just I do not like to fly. Um, but I do recognize it to be this like incredible thing that we can do. Uh, and and does, the music, does the music just... If it's really a great song, just make you more comfortable. It makes me more comfortable. And the light comes in the window funny and you're at 35,000 feet and, and you're going somewhere like you're, you're on the move. And it's like music just hits you harder. It does. It hits me harder on a plane than it does anywhere else. Okay. I guess, do you have a guess yet on our lightning round on a venture one? If you're not sure, don't guess because it'd be better if you go one for one. Because if you if you okay. mess up if right. you mess up yeah I, I got it down to three people but okay well yeah let's you know, let's let's go to we got two more you got two more okay. questions to go okay. so maybe okay. that'll narrow it down number four how many black Guns and Roses T-shirts do you own oh that okay now I think I know who it is <laughs> uh, I own three black Guns and Roses T-shirts. only three and I occasionally get to choose I don't think I wear it that often but often when I'm photographed I happen to be wearing it there's a gray one. That's uh, I think Paradise City, and I get. I I need to burn it. I think because I, I just wear it 
coincidentally, I wear it often when I'm photographed, and it and it appears were, that I only own one T-shirt. Were you wearing that when you and I did the event uh, at Square Books and? In Oxford, Mississippi, you oh, might have I could been. have been. Well, I think probably. you might have been. You're definitely wearing a black T-shirt. I can't remember if it was Guns and Roses. Or I have not. a bunch just... of metal too. I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fan of uh, hair metal. I have, a, I have an Appetite for Destruction T-shirt. I have a Motorhead T-shirt. Uh, Ace of oh, Spades. maybe it was Motorhead. It was definitely a black uh, metal shirt that you were wearing. I wear, a, I wear a few of those. I wear a few of those. Well, mm-hmm. the over under on that was five, so um, three is three. I have three Guns and Roses specifically. Okay, okay I would narrow this down to two people. All right, we got one more question. Number five, be honest. At what age did you learn to make yourself eggs or any food for that matter? I'm 43, 42. How did you survive 42 years on this earth with not knowing how to make eggs or anything else, Chris? I, you know what you can do, Don? There's two things you can do. You can go outside, and there are places that will make you food in exchange for money. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's good. That's a good re- tip. They're called restaurants. And <laughs> the other thing you can do is uh, if people love you enough, they will make you food, and you eat it. And and, and, and when somebody makes you food and they love you, uh, it tastes – It's the, nothing beats that. It's so good. And I can't – and I am a, I'm a person – and I, I've been criticized for this, and it's okay. It's a justifiable criticism. If I'm not good at something, I don't do it. And so I only do a couple of things because I'm not skilled at most things. The things I can, the things I do, I feel like I'm fairly competent in, and I don't like to try and fail at new things. And so cooking was just one of those things that I didn't learn how to do because I couldn't do it as well as the food I could go buy. Like it was, why would I work? to make something worse than I can just go outside and get. That was my thinking. But then I, I, you know, I got divorced and my wife was the, my ex-wife was the cook in our family. And, um, and then after that I was like, well, I can't eat out all the time. Like I'm going to be 400 pounds. So I just started learning how to cook. And, and how are your eggs? How are, how are oh, they after a I can year? Cook a, I can cook a sunny side up like a mofo. Really? I, I put my eggs up against anybody now. All right. Well, next um, time we get together, I want to try those. I'll make you some eggs. Um, the, 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 the person who... Yes. Who's the person who posed these questions? It's either Seth Wickersham or Kevin Van Valkenburg. Well, you got to guess between those two. It's Seth. You're incorrect. Damn it! <laughs> It was KVV, Kevin ah! Van Valkenburg, our, our mutual friend uh, who is going to be on this podcast actually sometime soon. He's uh, he's going to do the newsletter and so are you, my friend. You're yeah, gonna, well, you, you he is gonna... a nice – Kevin is the nicest. God, he's is. the nicest boy. I like Kevin so he much. He is a very, very good person. He, he is, is a, a very, very good person with a giant heart and he, he – does. He does. He is – he's one of my favorite people in the whole world and when yeah. I – when I tell myself that the internet sucks and that it doesn't do me any good, Kevin and I met on the internet, and we had a we had a blind date. Oh, phone is ringing in the background. Sorry for the. That's okay. Technology. That's all right. Uh, we had a blind date in Baltimore as a result of our meeting, and um, he's one of my best friends in the world. And so I say every time I regret, every time I regret having been on the internet, I tell myself that's how I met KVB. And I'm sure there was a lot of beer consumed on that first date. No. 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 Oh, what did you guys drink? Yeah, we drank. Oh, yeah, of course, in crab cake. It was in Baltimore. It's one of my one of my favorite parts about that story is 
you know, we didn't, it was, it was a long time ago and we didn't know what each other looked like. Uh, and we were meeting in Baltimore. I was driving through Baltimore. I said, do you want to get together? And he called and left me a message to describe what he looked like. And he, you know, very Kevin, he was like, you know, kind of a schlubby guy. I'm wearing a golf shirt. Uh, and then at the very end, very end of this voicemail and he goes, and, um, uh, you know, kind of chubby. And then he hangs up. (laughs) 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 And the funny thing is I walked into the bar and I knew exactly who he was. I was like, oh, that's Kevin over there. Uh, We became best friends. Really good friends. KVV is also somebody like Wright who is now off Twitter permanently. He's, he's, he's had it. He's yanked himself off. He's somebody else who, um, would get himself into some trouble on Twitter for his political views and other things. uh, Yeah. And it's just at some point, it's like, what are you getting out of it? You're not getting paid to do it. Like, what are you getting out of it? And it's like, it's, if you're volunteering to do something that's not fun, you kind of have to ask yourself, why are you doing it? It's got to be fun. It's got to be, be fun. fun. Yeah, if I'm doing it for short. free. If I'm doing it for free, it better yeah. be fun. No, that's a very, very good rule for sure. And uh, well, listen, man, I've really enjoyed it. This has been a blast. Thanks and, for paying uh, me to do this. Great. No, <laughs> well, this was fun. This was fun. It this was, was fun. It was this was, free. was fun. I could, I could talk to you for. I want to ask you all these questions. Well, we'll do that someday. That'd be fun. Maybe, well, we can, can do it can, over can, a few beers. Can we have an episode of your podcast where you're the subject? Maybe that's not a bad idea. We could do that. We could we could figure that out. Some because point. I would like to return this. I would like to because I have so many questions. I was yammering on there, and I was like, "Well, you must blah blah blah." And I no 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 no. You were you were great. And and Chris, really, I am I'm so thrilled that you've agreed to sort of help us with the newsletter. That's a labor yeah, no of love, and the fact yeah. that you very quickly agreed and you'll be in the chair sometime early next year is yes. great. And uh, listen, con- congratulations on all your success with the screenwriting. Thank I know you. You're gonna, I know you're going to crush it and the books. Can't wait to read them. Um, Me too. Then, I've, then that'll mean I've written them. Hey, and congratulations on uh, your movie success. Well, there's I've never not- actually see it happen. Yeah, they're actually it, we're running out of time. We'll, I'll talk to you off. Actually, the unfortunately the movie it was optioned, but it's not going to be made. That movie that was made was not my story. That was oh. the that was Fuck. the official yeah that was the official battle of the sexes movie and Peter Chernin who optioned my story let the option run out so it's available if anybody's listening um, yeah that was oh, the official story that wasn't it was yours no no it wasn't about the fix it was not about there's not there's not a word in there about uh, anything uh, untoward going oh on oh my god I thought you were sexes. the I thought you were the unicorn where it actually happened no 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 there wow. was there's three projects that were all going like you said you know with your Zanesville story when yeah. there's, there's two movie projects they got out of the gates faster than us there was a screenplay and a guy had been paid quite a bit of money to write a pretty good screenplay based on my story but uh no that's not happening we're talking about a piece that i did called the matchmaker about the battle of the sexes in 2013 for anybody wow not, oh, i'm not, sorry not, to, i hope i didn't just no 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 it's perfectly fine it's perfectly fine i'm 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 over it and look it's uh i'm not as, well, as you know, because you've had lots of stories optioned, when they're optioned, it's just free money. And if it the is movie free gets, money. Yeah, it's free money. money. It's free always, money. I always hold, held out the hope that one would actually – and you were like the you were the shining star for a minute there. I was like, man, Don made it happen. It yeah, happen. no, no, it didn't And it now didn't you've happen. just crushed everything. Well, now I'm just sad all over again. No, okay. don't be sad. It's all good. It really, I'm, 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 I'm just thrilled that it got optioned. I, again, the option was – the coolest thing because a bunch of different people were all vying for it. It was this heady weekend where it was like people were bidding for it. Yeah. So just that is a great, was a great experience and a great memory. Um, okay. And, you know, so, all right. So everybody, this has been Chris Jones. He writes hey. for S. He has written for Esquire, the New York times magazine and ESPN, the magazine, the winner of two national magazine awards for feature writing. His handle on Twitter is at Enswell Jones, although he's not on there 
the moment, but will be at some point again, I'm sure. Probably. Uh, and Chris, thank you so much for all your time. Thanks so much for having me, buddy. Love you. I really appreciate it. Love you too. So right. we'll do this again. Thank you so much for listening to the Sunday Long Week Podcast. We'll be back next week with another great guest. Thanks for listening.